This is Overlapping Insight, Episode 2. We overlap the world events and movements, including financial reports, with the prophecies and timing of the coming of Christ, including how that will be our source of deliverance, prosperity, relief, comfort, and kindness. We overlap uh, these details with you and your life, how you can be prepared so that you can have power, patience, freedom, vision, choice, and you can respond with kindness to others no matter what is going on around you. You can see the episodes with each subject section at overlappinginsight.com, which will just link you back here to YouTube. On the world subject, we're talking about the world organizations and the Great Reset and many related details. On the subject of Christ, we're talking about the 2300-year prophecy by Daniel in the Old Testament. On the subject of you, we're take, uh, talking about um, developing high knowledge of self-worth. And, and there's, there's, there's quite a twist and turn there, so I hope you stick with us. Uh, and this, I gotta tell you, was daunting to put together. I have felt like a investigator of a murder mystery and had to see the gore. And it was daunting and uh, detailed and so it's been a work to get this all put together in one place so here's a list of some world organizations and we're just going to talk about five of them off the top United Nations World Health Organization World Economic Forum World Bank and the International Monetary Fund this is interesting to me so uh, I'm gonna bring it up up to speed here with rapid speed uh, by giving the history of gold linked to the dollar, the Bretton Woods Agreement, uh, when some worldwide organizations were started, so this is all related, then we were taken off the gold standard and the beginning of the World Economic Forum, we're going to cover that, and in our current day there is blatant talk about a great reset and social controls, and what that means to you, which does not look good. So don't blink, this is going to be rapid fire with some adrenaline involved. I have to admit, I'm feeling somber. Uh, I, you know, here we're, we're working at giving you some uh, bright hope in Christ, which we will still do. In fact, emphatically, we will. It is actually disgusting to be faced with the lies that are obvious as we look back at what has gone on, which ought to give us a red flag to be very wary about the lies that we are being fed now, not to just follow along thinking they're taking care of us. So don't fall for it. Don't just think that they, whoever they are, are taking care of us automatically. Not so. Previously, I understood that we were taken off of the gold standard in 1971, but apparently this demand from President Roosevelt was an act of taking us off the gold standard in 1933. Check out this executive order to return all gold collections worth $100 or more. James Bovard wrote, To speak of the return of gold implied that government was the rightful owner of all the gold in the nation, and thus that no citizen had a right to possess the most respected store of value in history. Isn't that interesting? Roosevelt assured the country, the order is limited to the period of the emergency. This is eight, uh, 1933, but the order stayed on the books until 1974 when Jimmy Carter took it off. Roosevelt, in a later note to the public papers, justified the order because it served to prevent the accumulation of private gold hoards in the U.S. Roosevelt used the same hoarding rhetoric against anyone who owned gold that Stalin used against Ukrainian peasants back in the day who sought to retain part of their wheat harvest to feed their families. But while Stalin sent ex uh, execution squads to kill peasants who had a few that bushels of grain hidden in their hovels, Roosevelt was kinder and gentler, seeking only 10-year prison sentence and $250,000 fines for any citizen who defied his edict and possessed more than five double eagle gold coins. Isn't that interesting? And for what? So that the government could betray its promises and capture all the profit itself from the devaluation of planned, shortly after Roosevelt banned private ownership of gold, he announced 
a devaluation of 59% in the gold value of the dollar. In other words, after Roosevelt seized the citizenry's gold, he proclaimed that the gold would henceforth be of much greater value in dollar terms. So it used to be $20.67 from, what, about 1900. He changed it to $35. Now, interestingly enough, that was 40% difference. So I'm feeling like I got derailed. My in intention was to tell you about how some of these world organizations were started, but I think that this is significant to know that if you feel that the government intentions are to take care of you, please know that this murder mystery is revealing much more under the covers. So this was eight, uh, 1933, after World War II, and we are referring to 1944 here, 44 nations attended a gathering at Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. We're gonna talk about the Bretton Woods system. So the year is 1944. The end of World War II is in sight. The Allies, realizing that they were going to win, wanted to get together and talk about creating a world where war and depression could never happen again. They met in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. There they spent a month negotiating. There were 730 people or delegates from 44 different countries, all our allies. And essentially what they did was create a three-legged stool, a tripod of institutions to guide the post-war world. This is how that three-legged stool works today. The first leg is the International Monetary Fund, or IMF. The IMF works with countries that are having problems with money, problems with debt, and paying back the money that they've borrowed. And the IMF gives them advice on how to change their internal policies and structures in order to fix the problems that they've got. The second leg is the World Bank. Back in 1944, when the delegates met at Bretton Woods, they realized that poverty is a big motivating force when it comes to conflict and violence. And they decided that if they could help countries grow and create jobs, there would be a better chance of peace. So the World Bank is primarily a lending institution with a goal of ending extreme poverty, and it lends money to poor countries for economic development. The third leg of the stool, as it stands today, is the World Trade Organization, or WTO. The WTO promotes global trade and free trade, and it also functions as a courtroom for member countries to resolve trade disputes with one another. Basically, the WTO upholds the rules of international trade. Thanks for watching. Stay tuned for more Trade Guys videos. So that is the beginning of the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and the World Trade Organizations. You've heard about the three-legged stool. But be aware of how that sounds good to promote peace in the world and to help poor nations when an organization or person controls the food, they control the people. If they control the money, they control the world. So it came to mind, um, as I had to wonder why there's such a huge effort in international trade cooperation and rules and regulation. All of that is for those who want to get rich. Maybe that doesn't sound so uncommon to you, but I had to wonder about business and government and their rep, uh, reputation as I come across the, this clip from Ronald Reagan and Johnny Carson. Well, uh, Johnny, I think that one of the things is that people keep looking to government for the answer, and government's the problem. You, a moment ago, you, you asked, you know, about people and feeling not only confused, but right. low and, and down in America. First of all, the American people, if they would just take a little inventory and look around, you triple our troubles, and we're better off than any other people on Earth. And we've asked so much of government, and we've gotten in the habit over the last 40 years of thinking that government has the answers. There's very little that government can do as efficiently and as economically as the people can do themselves. And if government would shut the doors and sneak away for about three weeks, we'd never miss them. Now, the... If, if the people Anybody want to... Anybody you had in mind particularly? Huh? <laughs> no, I said this while I was in government. <laughs> okay. Our biggest problem is that we have built a permanent structure of government, federal, state, and local, the permanent employees, and they've come to the place that they actually determine policy in this country more than does the Congress of the United States. Mm -hmm. There are 14 and a half million public employees in the United States. That's quite a voting block. So isn't that interesting that Ronald Reagan, now he was governor at the time and he was not yet president, 
But he says, we would do better if the government would just step away. <laughs> be, I mean, close up for three weeks, we wouldn't even miss them. So what, what happens when we have this <clears throat> ever-present push for riches? Individuals want to be kings in their own way. That may lead to an individual or organization to be bent on conquering the world. We essentially take away all these other privileges and opportunities from the little people when we take all the industries, the growing of food, the making of, of any product, uh, manufacturing that we could do locally for ourselves, even in our own country. But so this whole effort of, of world seems to really be to support the rich that want to take over the world. Do we not see that? In contrast, there are times in history uh, recorded in scripture and other forms of history when Christ has his prophets guide society according to his principles when they were left alone and they worked together. This was not communism, but cooperation and where people just work together and love to take care of each other. Totally different from communism. We would still be so much better off. There is enough and to spare in all the world for everybody. So it's greed. And certainly, Satan has a part in all this. But here we are. Big government, big business, technology with power to control even more. The World Economic Forum wants a great reset. When I looked up their website and saw other video propaganda that they produce, I was sickened. It seems too innocent and good-hearted. The big change was in 1970 one, when President Nixon took us off the gold standard once and for all. Here's President Nixon's clip. In the past seven years, there's been an average of one international monetary crisis every year. Now who gains from these crises? Not the working man, not the investor, not the real producers of wealth. The gainers are the international money speculators. Because they thrive on crises, they help to create them. In recent weeks, the speculators have been waging an all-out war on the American dollar. The strength of a nation's currency is based on the strength of that nation's economy. And the American economy is by far the strongest in the world. Accordingly, I have directed the Secretary of the Treasury to take the action necessary to defend the dollar against the speculators. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserve assets, except in amounts and conditions determined to be in the interest of monetary stability and in the best interest of the United States. Can you sort of read through the narrative of what he's trying to say, just for the purpose, I mean, blame it on other things of why we have to do this? But here's Lehrman's explanation of what just happened. These countries had the right to claim gold to redeem their dollar reserves it would put the United States in a position of insolvency. We just shouldn't get all that excited about the fact that they worry about our budget. Is that your view? That's exactly right. They can't do one cockeyed thing. They'll say, oh, well, we've got to maintain our relations. We've asked them to hold dollars. And I said, no, we didn't ask them to hold dollars. They've held dollars. It's been in their interest to hold dollars. So the dollar being taken off the gold standard became a fiat currency. So going to investopedia.com. This is what we find from them. Fiat money is a government-issued currency that is not backed by a commodity such as gold. Fiat money gives central banks greater control over the economy because they can control how much money is printed. Most modern paper currencies, such as the US dollar, are fiat currencies. One danger of fiat money is that governments can print too much of it resulting in hyperinflation. So this article was written some time ago, and here we are. If you saw episode one, and if not, I encourage you to go see it, the money printing. We went from $4 trillion in uh, money in the system to $20 trillion in 22 months. This is from March 2020. So here's a graph of the value of the dollar. Now that we're off the gold standard, they can do whatever they want with the dollar. And this is how our buying power has decreased. So you see it goes down, and I, I believe, it, I think it's sort of showing there about 85%, but I think it's even worse than that. 
So also in 1971, what else happened? The World Economic Forum was formally started. Klaus Schwab started the World Economic Forum. Why? For what purpose? In the early 1970s, the Cold War split the world while the Vietnam War split America. An oil crisis was looming and a German economics professor had a bright idea. The idea was unconventional at the time, but it has since taken hold. It was Professor Klaus Schwab's stakeholder theory, meaning a company should serve all its stakeholders, not just its shareholders, employees, suppliers, and the community it is a part of. The vision for this socially responsible stakeholder capitalism became the guiding principle of the World Economic Forum. So that was in 1971. Klaus Schwab is still around. He acts like he is a world dignitary. And even in these clips you're going to see here, you'll see how they are treated like uh, wise world representatives. Who voted them in? They're self-appointed. Yeah, the answer is yes. The World Economic Forum is insane, run by a group of elites that is taking away your personal and financial freedoms, and they're just getting started. Now, as Rand Paul said, this isn't a conspiracy. It's actually written down right inside their meeting agendas and their mission statements. So I'm dead set against this, and they used to call people who talked about one world government, they used to say, oh, it's a conspiracy. We would always say, no, it's in their mission statement. They say <laughs> it at every meeting. That's what they're for. Now, more on that in a second. But first, something happened last week that didn't get a lot of attention in the mainstream media because they were working in lockstep with these billionaires to keep it quiet. So they don't actually cover it in their own press. They actually hide it, and they're hoping that you won't notice. But you're smarter than that because you're a subscriber of this channel, so good for you. Anyway, something happened at the World Economic Forum last week in Davos that should make us all scared, especially if you're worried about your money. And I think most of us are. So pay attention to every word of what they just said. Watch this. Fast forward five years. Do we have a central bank digital coin out there in the world that is being utilized on a daily basis? whether it's wholesale or retail, and it becomes a superior system. Francois, yes or no? Uh, we have several experiments which are not very far from that. No. They are not yet generalized, but they could be, let's say, the next three years. Uh, I am also a believer that will come in five years, yes. What I try to say is obviously, you know, we still have those huge legacy environment, they need to migrate as well, so we will not yet see all the benefits coming through, but it will come and will be much more efficient, also probably much more secure. Hundreds of gas-guzzling private jets took off this week as billionaires from all over the world jetted off to Davos, Switzerland for the ritzy and glamorous World Economic Forum, a week-long event for the ruling class to talk down to the rest of us. And it's not for everybody. It's an invite-only event, and once you do get in, they divide you by class. And it's all headed up by a guy named Klaus Schwab, who's pretty much running a one-world government here. He kicked off the week by saying the future is theirs, not yours. The future is not just happening. The future is built by us, by a powerful community as you here in this room. We have the means to improve the states of the world. And the way they start is by tracking you. If you go deep in the weeds and what these people are saying at this place, they're openly scheming up some of the craziest plans you'll ever hear of, like tracking your carbon footprint. We're developing through technology an ability for consumers to measure their own carbon footprint. What does that mean? That's where are they traveling? How are they traveling? What are they eating? What are they consuming on the platform? So individual carbon footprint tracker. Mm. Stay tuned. But the other real danger here that's even more danger than all their phony caring about carbon footprint, the real danger is this. Look how bad your government is in a country where you get to vote for these people. This would be a government, a world government, where you don't get to vote on anybody. This is everybody's worst nightmare. 
the bureaucracy that we have trouble in our United States because we don't get to vote on them, we vote indirectly. Can you imagine the one world bureaucracy of all these elitists and their private jets that would rule our, our country and we wouldn't get to vote? So I'm dead set against this. And they used to call people who talked about one world government. People in that room are the ones that are going to bring this about. Make no mistake about that. I'm going to start with you, Mark, since you represent the United Nations, the world. Yeah. So how far are we? Okay, so we've got to pause on that one. Since you represent the United Nations, the world. Okay, so Mark Carney they're talking about here. What I've been talking about, he's just said it right there. He represents the world. And what did Mark Carney say? Yeah. He said, yeah. Along in fixing this. 90% of global emissions are under some form of net zero commitment by countries. 90%. 90% now are under these net zero commitments by countries. 90%, just think about that for a moment. We need net zero alignment, and it's not just the banking system, it's the entire financial system. Okay, next thing, what did he say there? It's not just the banking system. We've talked about this a lot. He's saying it's the entire financial system. That means you and me as well, by the way. That means our personal Everything we do, our bank accounts, our investments, everything, it includes all of us, the entire financial system. And this is where I believe carbon uh, credits or some sort, of, some sort of quotas around carbon, we don't quite know yet, but that's what I think it's gonna be, some sort of a carbon tax. This is the official website for the World Economic Forum. The title, now is the time for a great reset. I quote, we can emerge from this crisis a better world if we act quickly and jointly, writes Schwab. The changes we have already seen in response to COVID-19 prove that a reset of our economic and social foundations is possible. This is our best chance to instigate stakeholder capitalism and here's how it can be achieved. To achieve a better outcome, the world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our society and economies from education to social contrast and working conditions. Every country from the United States to China must participate and every industry from oil and gas to tech must be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. Holy cow, every country? That sounds like Satan's plan. I'll dictate what needs to happen and everyone will follow. Up until recently, they had a web page that explained own nothing and be happy. And as I was investigating and, and um, getting, going to find that again, it's all I see is that they ever denied they ever said that. So when they have this pushback, I see that they, again, they just wanna go more carefully, but still, this is not to be trusted. So, I think that we need to start uh, pinning all this on a wall and stretching red strings to show the relation of one world event to another world movement and society movement to a market extreme and to a pandemic. And we could see that there are some very questionable things going on behind the scenes. So I'm a bit stunned. I was aware of some of these things which I intended to tell you about originally, but as I dig deeper, there is definitely a deeper. So. Is this where we hide our heads in the sand? I can relate to that. It would be a lot easier to hide our heads and uh, it would just make it easier. But keeping all things in perspective, Christ has a plan. He has to let there be a division. He needs to know which side we are on. This is where we start revealing ourselves as wheat or tares. Are we going to stand up and choose freedom and not participate in their security plan? You know, giving up our security for, well, actually giving up our freedom for security, right? <laughs> or, or are we going to think this is inevitable and they're going to take over anyway? Well, what we do need for sure is to have food and fuel and things to be able to take care of ourselves so we can be prepared. So we don't have to be stuck behind how they're going to uh, essentially control us. So... Moving on to the Christ subject. I want to prove to you that the Bible is not an idle set of words. 
Christ has fulfilled his promises. His prophets speak his truth. And the Bible has been amazingly preserved. I'm going to show you a prophecy that God fulfilled to the very year. I need to lead up to that by giving a summary of how the Jews got back to Israel. I emphasize with a sense of awe how a people who were dispersed throughout countries to the north, east, south, and west, and to the European area, even, that's to the west part, 2,000 years ago, were gathered back to their land. And how did they know who they were? The world wouldn't let them forget. And I think that was part of the Lord's plan. The Jews were persecuted and tagged and frequently abused. Look at the picture now of how many nationalities the Jews represent of those who have gathered in Israel. But let's go back. In 1882, there were 24,000 Jews had uh, returned to Israel to escape persecution. That's 1882, right? 24,000. It is the Jewish tradition song to sing, Next Year in Jerusalem. So God had a plan for these people, and he wouldn't let them forget who they were. In World War I, Great Britain found themselves in control of Israel. As those few short years rolled on, there was a man of the parliament called Arthur Balfour. He felt strongly that the United Kingdom ought to help the Jews relocate to Israel as their official home. In 1917, there were about 16,000 Jews at the time, and so it started. But then they got pressure from, uh, to back out of this agreement by the Arabs who didn't like it. But the Jews kept sneaking in by boat. They had to force themselves in. And remember that they had a right to call this home, since they had come from there and were ravaged by war to leave. Their language and their heritage was preserved. Now, jump ahead to 1936. There were 384,000 Jews in Israel. So a bit of a fast forward still. They were promised to be able to be given their freedom and to have their own nation. This came from the League of Nations. With some struggle against opposing forces, they accepted and declared their independence on May 14, 1948. Again with the struggle, right? The Arabs are gonna just fight up against them and not acknowledge that they're a nation. But by that time, in 1948, there was a population of 716,000 Jews. So, uh, there was an Egyptian. His name was Gamal Abdel Nasser Hussein, who forced himself in as the leader of Egypt. We'll just refer to him as Nasser. He despised the Jews and wanted them to be annihilated. So Syria to the northeast, Jordan to the east, and Saudi Arabia to the southeast also thought that the Jews were a parasite to them. Nasser was probably the loudest voice and enraged the other nations. He took war to the Jews in 1958, about. But the Jews pushed them back. But it is the 1967 war that I want to tell you about, and we cannot deny that God had a part with them. So the daily declarations on the state radios of Egypt and other Arab nations continued to get louder. In May of 1967, Egypt started to implement the plan to eradicate the Jews from the land that they had claimed. They had every intention of taking to the air with their 900 fighter jets and to the ground with their uh, 240,000 men and 2,500 tanks. Uh, so they lined them up on the border. This is on the Sinai Peninsula side. So. Uh, Russia was also involved, by the way. Russia trained and provided these killing machines and many commanders to guide the Egyptian fighters. So the Jews were being confronted from every border. Threats, killings, boycotts of the Jewish products. And the United Nations just looked on. They had the United Nations all set up to watch what's going on. They had over a thousand uh, entries of people being killed or other incidents, and they did nothing but they looked on. So, in comparison, the Jewish state only had 300 fighter jets, 800 tanks, and 100,000 men and women soldiers. But they had organized themselves over the years. There was camaraderie among them. Girls, boy, men, old men, they all fought together. The women supported the efforts with food and clothes. Everyone had a job. And they had the freedom, by the way, on the battlefield to fight as they thought best, so they're very flexible and didn't have to take command from a central office. To defend themselves or die, there was no way out otherwise. The Israeli pilots were informed about the start of the operation only five hours in advance. 
At the same time, the Egyptian air defense system was effectively off on June 5th. Nearly 200 Israeli aircraft attacked 14 Egyptian airfields and caught them absolutely off guard. 338 Egyptian aircraft were destroyed and 100 pilots were killed within three hours. The Jordanian and Syrian air forces attacked Israel in retaliation at 11am on June 5th. The response of the Israeli Air Force was to attack their airfields, which led to the destruction of all 28 Jordanian, 53 Syrian and 10 Iraqi planes. Operation Focus was a decisive success. Israel lost only 19 planes in this operation and guaranteed its total air dominance for the rest of the war. The ground war was taking place on three fronts – the Sinai Front, the Jordanian Front and the Syrian Front. Early morning of June 7th, the Israeli paratroopers advanced on the Holy City. They advanced without artillery support, seeking to prevent damage to the city's ancient and historic sites. The battle lasted from early morning to the afternoon, when the announcement was made on the radio. Har Habayit Be'adenu, the Temple Mount is in our hands. For the first time in 19 years, Jews could pray at the Western Wall. And for the first time in 2,000 years, a united Jerusalem, Judaism's holiest city, was back in sovereign Jewish hands. That was a brief summary of the amazing Six-Day War that they took over. But I hope you'll look up some more information on that. This is a God-driven victory, absolutely. Remember that, the, that Israel is going to be the big winding up scene of these. This is where Christ is going to come when all the Jews are going to be defending in war of Armageddon and Christ will touch and land or touch or have his feet on Mount Olivet and it will split. A big valley will be created and the Jews will be able to skip there. So let's go to see Daniel's 2300 year prophecy. If we look at Daniel 8, 3-14, this is the NASB version of the Bible. It's going to be long, so stick with me on this one. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. And no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So keep in mind those four, uh, four horns. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceedingly great toward the south and toward the east and toward the glorious land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven and some of the host and of the stars it cast down to the ground and trampled upon them. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host and it removed the regular sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on the count of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. And it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. So you, you see here, we talked about the sanctuary, the day of sacrifice, or the sacrifice, and how this was destroying the sanctuary and holy things. Then I heard a holy one speaking. Another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? while the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. He said to me, For 2300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. The angel Gabriel then explains in verses 8, 20 through 26, 
the meaning of the above vision. Verse 20. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia, also referred to Medes, M-E-D-E-S. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in his place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. And so we see this through history, by the way. We're going to point this out in a second. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their courses, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. So here we have a reference to sanctuary and holy people, people of God. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. I think that refers to Jehovah or Christ. But he will be broken without human agency. In other words, in this case, he died from natural causes, a disease. The vision of the evenings and mornings which had been told is true, but keep the vision secret for it pertains to many days in the future. So what is clear to virtually all conservative interpreters is that Daniel 8, 20-22 refers to Alexander the Great. The large horn, king of Greece, that's where Alexander the Great came from, uh, from whom his empire has four generals arose and parceled out. In other words, later, um, because he died, four generals came and took over. But uh, this prophecy, now, it's, it's common uh, Bible or Hebrew tradition that when they speak of a day in prophecy, they refer to a year. So 2,300 years. So, speaking of Alexander the Great, when, and we can see this right in the history, it was the year 333 B.C. And by the way, this took place 400 years after Daniel even gave this, but it was right up to the T, all the uh, ex examples of the rams and the fighting. So the rule of the four generals of Alexander, who rose out of Alexander's broken up realm, these were the four, well, that talks about the four horns, right, that came out. Look at the Wikipedia diagram on the file here. It refers to, or shows, the battle area of when Alexander the Great came over and took out King Darius. And he was the one that was the ruler over Israel and all that. And so they, once they beat them, they went and pretty much desecrated the area. But the answer to when the sanctuary will be cleansed was 2,300 mornings and evenings. 2,300 years. It was Hebrew tradition to speak of a year to be represented by a day. We already talked about that. So what is 2,300 years from 333 BC? Take 2,300 minus 333 in order to get up to the time of Christ. You have 1967. Is that not awesome? The Jews took the entire city of Jerusalem and the sacred sites on June 7th, 1967. The Bible is not so confusing after all. God fulfills his promises, and that's the essential part that I wanted to emphasize. We can trust him, and we can know these things. Let's talk about you. How can you and I be ready for the next step in our eternal progress as the coming of Christ is near? You can see the episodes with each subject section at overlappinginsight.com, where you can also find the Overlapping Insight book for free. You can get the book and other books for free as a PDF download or audiobook. It is not available anywhere for sale. You can't even buy it from us. Everything we offer to you is free. In order to avoid priestcraft, we do not monetize this channel or expect to be paid anything short of the goodness in heaven for spreading the good news of Christ and His coming. Developing high knowledge of self-worth. I love this one. Just when you thought it might be good to get a high self-esteem from any source, after all, isn't that being positive about yourself? But getting uh, these, high, these high feelings of self-worth from a temporal world is a bad habit. For example, if you just got a new car, 
and you are feeling good about yourself, that is placing your self-worth in the temporal world. You are setting yourself up for a letdown. What happens if you are left to drive an old and ugly car? To follow the pattern of basing your self-worth on the temporal world, you should now be depressed and feel much less about yourself because you don't drive a nice car. You're low worth. The same can be true if you are basing your temporal worth on gaining or losing weight. But these things have nothing to do with your worth. So, basing your worth on the temporal world. This helped me realize what is going on when I might be confronted by an honorary person who is attempting to put me down for something that I had done or maybe I didn't even do at all. Uh, if someone is telling you that you are the scum of the earth or they are just being mean and unhappy, there's a very good chance that it really doesn't have anything to do with you. It is the way that they feel about themselves. If someone treats me poorly, they just aren't realizing or remembering that I am a child of a God, a creator. But worse for them, they are not remembering or knowing that they are a son or daughter of God. They are treating you that way because of the way they feel about themselves. So why are you offended? Besides, after you continue to be spiritually centered in Christ, you will learn not to react angrily. You will welcome trouble, because remember, there are no problems. They're just opportunities, practice, being like Christ. So your desire will be to help the person to find a greater happiness in their life instead of putting yourself on the defensive. So it's helpful to know, and this is liberating, isn't it? It's helpful to know how to base yourself on the temple world so that when you can start feeling that way again, being tossed to and fro, right, with every wind of doctrine, that you realize, oh, I'm being spiritually, or excuse me, temporally centered and I need to focus again. So consider this scripture. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, wait for it, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. This is referring to the people who follow Christ, you know, that make up the members or saints who follow, disciples, right, who follow Christ, because we are members of his organization that carries his gospel out to others as well. So here it is. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, man or woman, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Okay, so notice the part of that scripture, unity of the faith. How does that apply to you? That you and I are united in the goodness of Christ and treat each other well. And what about the other part, the knowledge of the Son of God? We can have the mysteries of heaven revealed to us as we keep close to the Spirit, study the scriptures, repent of our things we have done wrong and the things we haven't done right. Quote, knowledge of the Son of God. That is essential for our everyday to know that we have eternal life. And what is this part? Unto a perfect man. So when we say man, we mean mankind. That includes man and woman. And this one is easily overlooked. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Measure, what does that mean? How are we adding up? How are we increasing in goodness, increasing in strength so that we can know of our self-worth as a child of God? We are learning by our problems, which are opportunities to practice being like Christ. So what's the phrase again? Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What does stature mean? The dictionary tells us importance or reputation gained by ability or achievement. Importance or reputation gained by ability or achievement, that's stature. So it's an ability to be able to have a high threshold of holding our temper by feeling the spirit and not getting angry in the first place. And what better measure of stature is there than to be like Christ? That is worth more than all the honors of men, all money of men, all real estate we could possibly collect all respect we could demand from people. 
Hey, give me a lower lifestyle with a high sense of the heavens close to me. I'll take that over honors and riches and the assumed comforts of financial independence. Give me heaven on earth, I'll take that. Although you may consider, quote, every wind of doctrine, now this is interesting, every wind of doctrine to be more closely related to some principle of a church which defines your beliefs, you may discover how enlightening it is that this refers to the doctrine or belief about yourself and your circumstances and your future. If you are believing that you are worthless and inferior because of the way that someone is treating you, then there is a doctrine that you are honoring in your whole heart, that you're holding on to it, and the spirit cannot testify of that lie to yourself. Therefore, you are being blown around with every wind of doctrine. Do you see that? Isn't that awesome? Uh, but it's true, and even on the seemingly positive side, you may start to tell yourself that you have finally arrived, say you accomplished something, and now people will begin to see how great you are as you drive down the street in your new car, and they of course should know that through your good and diligent work in your profession, you have earned that great car. But again, you're being tossed around with a false wind of doctrine. You are great without that car. We love you without it. In fact, if you are going to get all huffy, we will love you easier without it. We like your humble self, yet if you can learn to be humble and happy despite the car and the job, then that would also make it easier for us to love you. Otherwise, we are just going to have to take your puffed upness and be spiritually centered so that we can turn our hearts to Christ instead of dwelling on how you are acting, which is really driving us crazy. So it might be helpful to just point the difference out. Uh, about being temporally focused and putting your worth in the nice things that surround you that you have gathered. But how do you really become spiritually focused? What has helped me is enticements. Now that word enticement, you might seem, uh, might seem like temptation, something to satisfy your worldly desires, right? But it can either be an enticement of satisfaction of the world or an enticement that brings you anger or sorrow or impatience. But here it is. When you feel any of these enticements that are pulling you in either direction to be temporarily, temporarily focused, use that as a reminder to pray. And remember, prayer is not just words, but to raise up your heart at any time of the day. So get in that habit, raise the heart and thought, if you can speak out loud. So if, if you can speak out loud, if you can't speak out loud, then you know, keep it in your heart. That's what I meant to say. So here's a sample prayer. Uh, don't memorize it, it's just an example of a prayer from your heart, in your way, in your conversation with your Creator. We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ because He is the one that's going to get us to the Father. Remember that. So I'll refer to episode one where we speak in greater detail of the millennium, of how Christ takes us, prepares us for the Father. So here it is, quoted again, right? Heavenly Father, I am grateful for the life that was given me here. I know that I'm important in thy sight, I am thy child, who has been raised in the glories before I was sent to this earth at this time. Bless me to remember that I have a heavenly heritage. Help me to see past the fiery darts of Satan as others attempt to bring me down with sarcasm or accusations. Help me to have thy spirit with me so that I can have this shield of faith to protect me from the world and others', uh, others opinions. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Just a sample prayer. But if it's these kind of things and we're truly raising our heart, we can have the spirit and be spiritually focused. So here's another good scripture on the subject of being spiritually focused. And now, my sons, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that ye must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe because of the rock upon which you are built, Christ, which is a sure foundation, Christ, a foundation wherein if men build, they cannot fail. Nope, they cannot fall. I guess that fits either way. So it's too easy at times to envision the imagery of a scripture and lose the perspective of your everyday life. Let's, let's learn something new about this uh, this scripture here. It speaks of when the devil's hell and his mighty storm shall beat upon you. Well, we don't see Satan, so we are left to our imagination that this might refer to temptations and problems that just come down upon us when no one else is present or 
But what about the hell and the storm of confrontations that we get from people? If it weren't for people, this life would be easy. People are the most unpredictable and difficult challenge that we've got, yet they are the most important factor of our own lives. So, here it is. Your mission if you choose to accept it. Right at the end of the chapter. This is similar to the commitment to principle number one. Pray frequently. But remember, they're not just words. It's your heart that's turned. Here, however, it is essential that you keep the truth about yourself in your heart and thank your God in the heavens for the complex body that he gave you as well as the opportunity to come into this world where you can have significant practice remembering your worth no matter what anyone else thinks. So, <clears throat> you remember what we were talking there, that what you're holding in your heart, if it's true, the Spirit can be there to testify. That's what the Spirit's for, to testify. Remember the wood stove, right? How we get closer to the wood stove? That was episode one. And then we can feel the Spirit. So, in this, we spoke of the world organizations. Those which have been forcefully taking our freedoms and planning for our future. But Christ fulfills his promises and he lifts us up. The words of the prophets which come from God will be fulfilled. They will be fulfilled. They have been fulfilled. Many of them have. So this prophecy of Daniel from six, uh, 600 B.C. about Alexander the Great in 333 B.C. Actually, Daniel was more like 530 B.C., wasn't he? About the sanctuary, Jerusalem, that would be restored was taken again in 1967, exactly 2300 years as predicted because God has all this orchestrated. He has orchestrated every detail that would surprise even the strongest of our believers. So be assured, you can believe Christ and you can believe in Christ. Do not ignore him. Do not fight against him. Follow him. In episode three, on the world subject, we will talk about George Soros, which we refer to as Jorge Gold, since O-R-O in Spanish means gold, and that's part of his name, so we have to make up something. So we're trying not to trigger an automatic censor of this channel by YouTube. Uh, anyway, we're talking about him, Jorge Gold, since he knows how to collapse nations, manipulate markets, he buys elections, and provides the voice of the media uh, for the narrative, even for the Antichrist. And I do not yet know who the Antichrist is, but I'm looking. So on the subject of Christ, we will talk about the signs of his coming, uh, Daniel's 70-week prophecy, which really is 490 years, we'll talk about that, the woman in the sky, and the eclipses of the sun. On the subject of you, we will talk about using performance for spiritual growth. Until episode three, I look forward to it.